Howdy, folks. This is the Words of Truth from the Scriptures podcast. I'm Brian Yeager. Glad you tuned in to listen. Today we have a question that was asked by a listener, or more so a request for a podcast, on the rapture doctrine. Well, the rapture doctrine is one of those things that it depends on who you talk to about what they mean by the rapture. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes to kind of get some of the positions out there, and I acknowledge right from the jump that there are many variations of this doctrine. And maybe you're listening to this and you're saying, well, I believe in the rapture, but I don't believe in that specific doctrine uh, that you just read. Well, I don't, that, there's a lot of different things. Uh, when I was looking at uh, some quotes, like, for example, uh, evangelicaloutreach.org, uh, they say the rapture of the church is definitely biblical, but when will the rapture occur? Will the coming of the Lord Jesus be before, pre, during, mid, or after, post, the great tribulation? If you dropped all preconceived ideas, you just go by the scriptures themselves, you'll see the clarity of when the rapture of the church will occur. Let's look at the evidence, which sadly supports the post-tribulation rapture doctrine. Vital scriptures to know during the reign of the Antichrist, etc., etc. And they go on and they base a lot of their doctrine on Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27, that we are going to talk about. Uh, in fact, we're going to look at the whole chapter of Mark 13 because in everything that I looked at, I looked at about 12 different variations of the doctrine, all of which I'm not going to cover every one of them. And I sought to find the common threads. Well, one of the common threads was either Matthew 24 or Mark 13, and they're parallel chapters. We'll go ahead and use Mark 13 because that was more commonly cited in some of the things that I read. But uh, this particular group of people, the evangelicaloutreach.org, they hinged their doctrine on Mark 13. They, When I read through all of the documentation they had, the book of Revelation to them was talking about the signs of the rapture, and they were looking forward to a singular Antichrist. Now, they say that it's post-tribulation. There are others that say it's pre-tribulation. Then there's others that say the rapture will happen during a tribulation. Well, uh, again, the tribulation is a common thread and a lot of the scriptures that they refer to are out of the Old Testament, Daniel chapters 8, 9, and 12. Uh, if you ever wanted to study the book of Daniel, in fact, the Old Testament at, at large, if you go to my website, wordsoftruth.net, and you look up the Bible study uh, section there, you will find an entire uh, Bible study, so to speak, of the whole Old Testament. So you just go to wordsoftruth.net, you click on Bible study materials, you click on Old Testament studies, and you've got Genesis through Malachi. And we did that study here over many years uh, and, and kind of covered more of an overview of uh, Genesis through Psalms. And then we slowed that study down from Proverbs to Malachi and did more of a, a verse by verse. Uh, so you can look at that study, and I've got the book of Daniel there. Um, you can study Daniel chapters 8, 9, and 12, which is pointing to things that were going to happen in the future for Israel, many of which, specifically to the text, 
were to occur during the reign of the Grecian Empire. Their days of their suffering were not over because they were going to face things under the reign of Greece. And Daniel points that out in prophetic terms. Well, when we read Mark 13, we're, we're going to see that Daniel is referenced and the tribulation is referenced. Well, Jesus is just likening what Daniel said Israel went through of old. So he was talking to Jews who would understand what that meant, would understand as you're going to read that it, it was pertaining to things that were going to happen to the temple, and it was going to happen again. And Jesus was foretelling of a separate event than what Daniel was. Uh, but you can go back and study the book of Daniel. Again, um, just start in chapter 1. I've got plenty of notes there. It's going to take you a while to go through that study, but I think you'll find it to be profitable. Uh, then there's other quotes, uh, and I think this one uh, is from the Moody Bible Institute. I don't think. I'm looking at it. Uh, it's moodybible.org uh, forward slash beliefs forward slash positional hyphen statements forward slash second coming. I'm just going to read the, I'm just going to read the page to you. It says, we believe in the second coming of Christ. His return from heaven will be personal, visible, and glorious, a blessed hope for which we should constantly watch and pray. Before he establishes his kingdom on earth, that, that is a key to the uh, rapture doctrine, so we're going to address that as we go through the study the idea of a kingdom on earth. Let me come back to the quote. I'm going to begin again with this second paragraph. Before he establishes his kingdom on earth, Jesus will come for his church, an event commonly referred to as the rapture. At that time, the dead in Christ will be raised and the living Christians will be caught up to meet in the Lord and the air and be with him forever. Now, when they say forever, um, they don't mean that. And you'll see why. They continue. In this resurrection, those who have died in Christ will have their redeemed souls and spirits united with a body similar to Christ's glorified body. Christians living at the time of this event will die, I'm sorry, living at the times will not die, but will be changed to be like Christ. This expectation is a motivation for holy living as well as a source of comfort. No man knows the day or the hour when this will take place. Now, that's key. They're going to equate this rapture doctrine and tie it into the events that are recorded in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. And they're saying nobody knows the time. When we're reading Mark 13, I need you to remember that, okay? So the quote goes on. After the rapture of the church, Christians will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. He will reward them on the basis of the works they have accomplished. This is not a judgment to determine their salvation, but a reward for labor on Christ's behalf. Now, that's a whole other false doctrine in this um, potpourri of false doctrine that's in this document, but it's not what we're going to talk about today. It says, the rapture will also inaugurate a period that the Bible characterizes as the great day of his wrath, the great tribulation, and the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of unprecedented difficulty will affect Israel and all nations. It purp its purpose will be to prepare Israel for her Messiah. I just immediately just want to thump my head on a table that's sitting in front of me right now. What did John the Baptist come and do? He came to prepare the way for Christ, but, but they're just ignoring all that. So back to the quote. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ will return with the host of heaven as well as the church to establish the messianic kingdom on earth. His kingdom will last for a thousand years. At this second coming, the Antichrist will be cast into the lake of fire and Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Obviously, they're referring to Revelation there. The nations and their representatives will be judged. 
Israel will be restored to her land, never more to be removed. Christ will reign with firmness and equity. His kingdom will be marked by material and spiritual blessing since the curse upon the earth will be removed. The Messianic kingdom will close with apostasy and rebellion. God will crush this uprising and the last battle of the ages and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. All those who reject the word of God be resurrected. They will be judged by Christ and cast in the lake of fire, the place where they will suffer final and everlasting punishment. After this judgment, there will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is the norm. There will be a new Jerusalem and the everlasting presence of God among all the redeemed. So that is their doctrinal statement on the second coming of Christ and the rapture doctrine that they have hinges on a separate judgment, one that is before the tribulation and then a final judgment that's after. So multiple uh, multiple judgments, uh, one where Christians are changed to be made like Christ, then brought back to an earthly kingdom. This teaching included the, uh, a 1,000-year reign and also makes a major argument that there is an Antichrist figure that is to come in the future. So let's deal with this from the scriptures. I think you'll find this study to be helpful. Um, it will answer in one form or another every one of the tribulation doctrines that I have read, just uh, and, and not just the ones that I read to you during this podcast, but others that I've encountered in the past, or as well as those that I read in preparation for this podcast. Number one, and when you're reading uh, Matthew chapter 24, you you really want to you really want to go back to verse 37 of chapter 23 and read all the way through chapter 25. And I'm going to just give you a heads up. This is what you're going to see. You're going to see two events discussed: the destruction of Jerusalem, and I'm going to hold on to one bit of information regarding that. And then the end of the world and the judgment. Those two separate events. So in Matthew 23, 37 through 24, 34, you see the destruction of Jerusalem being discussed by Jesus, the temple in specific. That happened historically in AD 70. Then the coming of Christ and the end of the world is discussed from Matthew 24, 35 through chapter 25 and verse 46. From that, I want to read to you Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all His holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. Before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say to them on His right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw thee a hunger or fed thee, thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say to them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. And, and just kind of a side note, who are Jesus' brethren? Those that do the will of his Father, Matthew 12, 46 through 50. Back to the point. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. And sick, and in prison, ye visited me not. Then 
Shall they answer, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered, or thirst, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall they answer them, Very last in his much, ye did it not one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. The judgment of Christ will not be segment, segmented into uh, periods of time separated by a thousand years or tribulation or anything else. Okay, that's very clear in the universal judgment scene that Jesus just gave us. Now, let, let's take, take some things into consideration. The doctrine of the rapture, everyone that I read has some form of Jesus coming back to earth and establishing an earthly kingdom. When Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, he said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then will my servants fight that I should not be delivered to Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Point over. Jesus is not establishing an earthly kingdom. He is not an earthly king. It is not a physical kingdom. It's not the castles and all those things that people imagine. In Luke 17, 20, 21, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. It's spiritual. In the first century, prior to Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, the kingdom of God was said to be at hand. John came preaching because his job was to prepare the way. You know, the Moody Bible Institute has this all wrong. In Matthew 3, 1 through 2, and those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus himself. In Matthew 4 and verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. When Jesus sent out the apostles, in Matthew 10, 1 through 7, when he called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power, that is authority, against unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles of these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, Labius whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter you not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Moody Bible Institute and others that teach the rapture doctrine and that emphasize Israel being restored miss that Jesus already did this work. John the Baptist already did this work. The disciples of Christ already did this work. It's not to come. In our future, it happened in the first century. In the first century, kingdom citizenship existed on earth. In Colossians 1, 12 and 13, to the saints in Colossae, it says, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Not a future event there, right? In Hebrews 12, 22 and 29, uh, says, You are coming to Mount Zion, under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now listen, it's you have come, not in the future. 
but presently, actively, these saints, these Jewish Christians have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, to God the judge of all and the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And see, he made reference to that because Abel's reference is referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, I believe verse 4. He continues, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that speaketh on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the remingling of those things that are shaken as of the things that are made, and the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a, is a consuming fire. They were kingdom citizens. Then, while living on earth, not being told, wait for a tribulation, and Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom on earth. One of the things that Jehovah's Witnesses used to teach, I'm not sure how many times their doctrines have changed since the last time I had this conversation, uh, but but one of the things that they used to teach is Jesus came to establish his kingdom, and he didn't, so he went back to heaven, and he's going to come back, and he's going to do it again, and that's where they pervert the book of Revelation and, and twist it and turn it and make prophecies out of Daniel, like the tribulation doctrines that exist among others, uh, and say, oh, kingdom isn't here yet. It is. Christians in the first century were members. Christians today are members. John said in Revelation 1 and verse 9, you know, if you are ever going to read a book, you ought to start in the first chapter. I can't tell you how many times I've had a Bible study with somebody who wanted to refer to the book of Revelation. And I always tell them, if we're going to talk about Revelation, we're going to talk about the whole book. You're not going to cherry pick. Just like the Calvinists that want to talk about the book of Romans, but they want to cherry pick. They, they, they want to stay in chapter 4 or 5 and then jump over to chapter 8. It's like chapter 6 is the avoided text. Uh, they want to stay away from that, and then they want to jap jump into chapter 11. Why is that? Because their doctrine doesn't fit the context. Same thing in the book of Revelation. People that want to say Revelation is talking about the future coming of the kingdom. Well, the first chapter says in verse 9, I, John, whom also your brother and companion in tribulation, what, right then and there, they were going through tribulation, folks, and in the kingdom not future, present, folks. And patience of Jesus Christ, who is in the isle, is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was a member of the same kingdom. The seven churches, members of the seven churches of Asia Minor were members of. Presently, in the first century, he was facing tribulation like they were presently in the first century. And folks, tribulation hasn't ended. It's, it's going to it's going to continue. Persecution is going to continue for Christians, and while it's on different levels at different times in history, it's going to continue until Christ comes. That On earth, there is no peace for those in Christ Jesus in the physical sense. Of course there is in the spiritual sense, Colossians 3.15. But when you look at those three contexts I just gave you, Christians in the first century, kingdom citizens. In the end, the kingdom is not going to be brought to earth, it's going to be brought up to the Father. 
in the resurrection chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 24, says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming, then cometh the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power. Simple. Simple. Kingdom citizenship is there. And yes, there is a sense in the scriptures where the kingdom is referred to in the heavenly sense, like when Paul in 2 Timothy 4.18 says, The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to which be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's in reference to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 24, where, where the kingdom won't be kingdom citizenship in heaven from people on earth, but will entirely be in heaven. Why is that? Because the earth will cease to exist, will not be here anymore, will be burned up. We will get to that text here in just a little bit. So point number one, which happens to be a key doctrine in everything that I read about the rapture, is it hinges on a future establishment of the kingdom on earth. That's false. Secondly, many of the things that I read about the rapture doctrine, that is false, included an idea of a future antichrist. You know, there are four times that the antichrist is talked about in the scriptures. 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last time. Did you hear that? You know, people are saying, when are the last days going to begin? He said, it is. That's there in the first century. And he says, and you've heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not in 2000 whatever. That is in the first century. Many Antichrists. Contextually, they were among the disciples and went out from among them uh, in, in the context. And in that context, in verse 22, is the second time Antichrist appears. It says, Who is a liar? But he that denieth Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. The third time is in chapter 4 of 1 John. It's in verse 3. It says, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now is already in the world. Not future, now. And then the final time, 2 John verse 7, For many deceivers are entered in the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and antichrist. So, debunked. It's over. Debunked, right? The kingdom already is in existence in the first century. The antichrist, plural, already in existence. And you could tell from what John wrote. There were people in the first century that... We're thinking there is going to be one Antichrist and this is going to signify the end. And he was telling them, no, there are many. They went out from us. There are many that deny that Christ has come in the flesh. And then tied to that, and, and I emphasize this in 1 John 2, 18, it is the last time. So tied to that is this future looking forward to a final period of time, a, a end of days or the last days. You know, when Jesus left uh, this earth, ascended into heaven, prior to that, he commissioned the apostles, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, to go to the world, to teach, 
all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? In Acts chapter 1, Luke, we're going to call Acts 1 second Theophilus because the book of Luke is the first letter to Theophilus, Acts is the second. Acts 1, Jesus is ascending into heaven. He gives the picture, he picks up right from, if you read, go from Luke 24 to Acts 1, it's just just a continuation, very almost seamless continuation. And then they appoint a 12th apostle, Matthias, because Judas has hung himself. Then in Acts 2, the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached on earth after Jesus left this world. I want to read to you the first 17 verses. And I want you to listen carefully because you're going to hear in the reading of this that the last days began right here in Acts chapter 2. So, beginning at verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. This is a different tongue than what you read in 1 Corinthians 14, by the way. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia and Pontus, Asia, Persia, Pamphylia and in Egypt and in the parts of Libya and about Serene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselyte, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice, said them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Did you hear that? Let me repeat. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Go back and read Joel chapter 2. Joel prophesied of this day. That is what Peter refers to. These are the last days. And when you read through the New Testament, first century writings, like the book of Hebrews. Remember, we were already in Hebrews, and we were talking about they received the kingdom. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and divers manners spake in times fast unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Did you hear that? 
hath in these last days. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are honest, you know that this idea of the last days are still in the future, uh, worldly kingdom of the Antichrist, you know it's all false. So every doctrine about some rapture, a word that doesn't even appear in the Bible, is completely and utterly false. It is a twist of Scripture and a figment of confused minds' imagination. Well, let's talk about the twist of Scripture part. Mark 13, okay? I know sometimes uh, we get into a little bit of a reading uh, in this podcast, but man, context is key. And I, I always wish, every time I teach... I wish I could just take the time to read whole books. I, I know that's not possible. And of course, Jesus quoted Isaiah, Paul quoted Isaiah, etc., etc. So quoting scriptures out of their context is, is right. It's acceptable unto God if you're handling the context right. My concern is that when I'm using scriptures, people don't know the context. And because they don't know the context, they don't understand the true impact of that statement. Can't do it every time. Uh, every lesson, every podcast, every sermon would be days long instead of an hour, hour and a half that we're limited to. Well, we got to look at Mark 13 in its context. Just can't take it out of its context. Uh this is one of those necessary studies that we're going to have to engage in a little bit of a lengthier reading. So Mark 13, I'm, I'm going to read the whole chapter uh, under you, uh, and I just want you to listen carefully. And if you're not driving or working or doing anything else, just open your Bible up and follow along. I hope you do that anyway at some points in times. I hope you don't just trust that I'm always giving you the right references. Uh, you shouldn't trust anybody to do that. You know, side point. We're at the 30-minute mark. I, I've got, I have time to make a side point. Years ago, uh, I was preaching, visiting a, a group of people in Pennsylvania where I was not working locally as an evangelist. And this group of people supposedly had elders and an evangelist. And it, it was a rather large group of people. Uh, and it was a full auditorium. And prior to me teaching that day... It was actually a whole week, but the first day, I noted how many people walked in the building with no Bible. And listen, this was before people had Bibles on their phones. I, I get it now. I know a lot of a lot of people have their Bible in digital uh, form. I'm not faulting that. I mean, that's very convenient. Um, I still, I'm still a Bible turner. I still like. I know where things are on the pages of my favorite Bible, but no fault there. This is before that. So I got up and I started preaching and I'm looking out and nobody's turning, nobody's verifying everything. They were accustomed to overheads being used and the scriptures being put up for them. 
Let me tell you the danger of that. Anybody can add or remove keywords. Think about Satan. When he's talking to Eve, she ate of that tree, she shall not surely die. The word not, just one word, is the false part of that statement. Okay? So in this sermon in Pennsylvania, I started making up verses. And I even made up a book of the Bible. I said, you know, if you turn over to Hezekiah chapter whatever, and I preach from the King James Version and, and have for a, many, many years. So it, it's not hard. Thus saith the Lord God Almighty, Hezekiah, my servant, my prophet, my priest, unto thee I, I give the keys of knowledge, etc., etc. Right? Sounds like the King James Version, doesn't it? Well, there is no book of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah wasn't a priest. He was a king. I don't remember what I made up back then. I'm not telling you what I said. I, I don't remember. I, I just did it off the cuff. I just made up a bunch of stuff, um, added chapters and verses to the Bible. Romans chapter 18 and verse 5. There's not 18 chapters in the book of Romans, by the way. Or, you know, might say, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 59, and just make up verses, add everything, nobody's catching on, nobody's saying anything, then I revealed to them. I, I just completely and totally made up verses, and y'all didn't know it. What, what about that Berean spirit where you search the scriptures daily, whether these things are so, Acts 17, 10, 11. So I hope that at some point you don't just take what I or anybody else says, even when, when they're reading from the Bible, because uh, just a slip of the tongue can make a statement false, and, and maybe not even intentional, right? I, I mean, after I'm speaking for an hour or more, it's likely every time that I've missed a word in a verse or something along that nature, uh, my mind works faster than my mouth uh, tends to speak. Sometimes I'm thinking of a next point I want to make while I'm talking in the past. So you need to verify things, whether someone intentional or not. See, I'm not even indicting everybody. Just verify that what that person is saying true. Maybe, maybe they just made an, uh, an honest mistake, okay? So I'm going to read Mark 13, if you can follow along. As he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple... Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, what shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. And I'm going to stop here for a moment. If you read Matthew's account, Matthew 24, and like I said earlier, really begin in Matthew 23, 37. But Matthew 24, there are more details given in this conversation. Uh, for example, um, in Matthew 24, 3, one variation, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us what shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Okay, so here in Mark's account and, and Matthew's account, you, just, you got Matthew saying there, there were two questions. Okay, Mark doesn't give us every detail. 
And you need to understand that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us different details. John focuses more when, when you're getting into John chapter 13, all the way through the end of the book, you're in the last week of Jesus' life and then what happens after his death. That's more emphasis on that time period than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do combined, okay? So you get different details by studying uh, through all four books. They're, they're written to different audiences. Now I come back, Mark 13, verse 5, Jesus answering them began to say, take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows, but take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you shall be beaten, you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. So I, I, I'm just going to stop for a moment. I want to remind you, when he says ye, he is talking to Peter, James, John, and Andrew privately, right? So what he's talking about is to them about what they will see and what they will go through. You know, if you've been listening to my podcast, one of the things I like to point out, when we're reading through the New Testament, we're reading somebody else's mail, things that are taught to other people. You got to read it as it's taught to them, not as it's taught to you. And from that, you have to decipher what can I learn and how can I please God? So back to the text, verse 10. The gospel must be first published among all nations. By the way, folks, Colossians 1.23, that happened in the first century. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do you premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, th that speak, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, the father the son. Children shall rise against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And he shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel, the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand... So, hey, listen, when you read and you understand and you go back and read Daniel chapters 8 through 12, the abomination, abomination of desolation happened before these days, okay? It's just a point of reference. He says, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him that is on the housetop not go down to the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. Let him that is in the field turn not back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that gave suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he has shortened the days. And then, if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, the very elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. But in those days, after that tribulation, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. Now, this is where one of the quotes that I read earlier from evangelicaloutreach.org, this is where they hinge their doctrine, verses 24 through 27, so I'm going to repeat and those days after the tribulation, the sun shall be dark and the moon shall not give her light. 
The stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in the heaven shall be shaken. Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And they shall then shall he send his angels, shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost parts of the earth to the uttermost parts of heaven. So that's where the doctrine is, is keyed in on. What we're going to do after we read through this chapter is I'm going to take you through some Old Testament scriptures of judgment days of past. And you're going to see similar language. Uh, and and, and I, I understand where people could twist this and say, wow, yeah, that has to be Christ coming and judging the world. Oh, it's just language that indicates a day of judgment. Okay, so a lot of them stop right here. Why do they stop right here? In verse 28, Now learn a parable of the fig tree, when their branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when you shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, listen carefully to verse 30. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Did you hear that? Debunked. Debunked. It's over. It can't be about something to come because Jesus promised it was going to happen in that generation. Unless you're going to say that Jesus lied and that his prophecy failed. You hear that? I'm going to repeat. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Now notice in verse 31. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So here he transitions. In Matthew 24, same transition is made in that text in verses 34 through 36. In verse 34, it's that generation. Then verse 35 and 36 are like what Mark said in 31 and 32 here in Mark 13. In verses 1 through 30, he gives them signs. He tells them what to look for. He tells them, when you shall see these things come to pass, you know that it's nigh even at the doors. But when he begins to talk about the judgment day, nobody knows. There's no signs. There's nothing. So in verse 33, take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly, he shall find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. That's the end of Mark chapter 13. Now I want to talk about the language. The language that we read in Mark 13, 24 through 27. I, I know that I'm, I'm going overboard here. We've already answered it. Any honest Bible student says, I've got it. Yep, this rapture doctrine is foolish. And maybe if you're listening to this and you've believed in the rapture doctrine, maybe you're kicking yourself. Well, I, I've never believed in the rapture doctrine, but I have believed other false things. And I know what that's like when you come to the knowledge of the truth. And like Job in Job 42, 1 through 6, you abhor yourself. And then how did I miss this? Well, yeah, I, I get it. Uh, if you're one of those people, man, get in touch with me. I, I want to help you get a lot of things, okay? But I want to talk about this language because this language 
it's in the Old Testament about judgment days that happened in the Old Testament. And I want to give you kind of a key to Bible study. Something that you'll want to remember. Something that you'll want to recall. It's, it's a way kind of not to be duped. When you're reading Old Testament prophecies, you need to know that whether it's in the book of Daniel or Ezekiel, because I know a lot of people that want to make the judgment scene uh, and the final day something earthly and sensual and devilish, that they love to go to Old Testament prophecies because people just generally aren't very familiar with the Old Testament. Just l- let me give you something that's going to keep you from being duped. In Matthew 5, 17 through 18, Jesus said, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, that's two of the smallest Hebrew marks, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So here it is. We're now under the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. The perfect law of liberty, James 1, 27 and 2, 12. The law of Moses has passed. The prophets have been fulfilled. Nobody today is under the law. We are married to another. That is the law of Christ, Romans 7, 1 through 6. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. We are under the New Testament of Jesus Christ. So when you're reading Daniel, you're, you're not reading a prophecy about the future, okay? If you remember that, you'll not be so easy prey. Remember Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Uh, and and I don't know why, but, you know, because this is on the famed Sermon on the Mount, but many people I've studied with over the years just have never picked that up. So back to the Old Testament prophecies. With this rule in place, that these things have been fulfilled. And Isaiah 13 is talking about the burden of Babylon, okay, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Here's a quick history of this, okay, because I don't, I don't want to extend your patience too much. The Chaldean Empire takes uh, Judah into captivity. And if you read the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel talks about the fall of Nebuchadnezzar and his son, Daniel chapters 4 and 5, where Daniel starts off, you know, in in captivity of a servant. And then, like I mentioned earlier, as I was referencing chapters 8, 9, and 12, these are things that, you know, Daniel addresses under the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are destroyed by God and given in the hands of the Medes and the Persians. So Isaiah 13, 1-20, The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see, lift up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I've commanded my sanctified ones. I've called my mighty ones from mine anger. Even them that rejoice in my highness, the noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty." Therefore shall all the hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. 
for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even man the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth shall move out of their place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger, and it shall be as the chaste roe and as sheep that no man taketh. They shall every man turn to his own people and flee into his own land. Every one that is found shall be thrust through, and every one that is joined in them shall be fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed into pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Daniel 4 and 5. What shall not regard silver as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash their young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of their womb. Their eye shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellent, she shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it dwell from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. That is a judgment day on Babylon, and you heard the language there about the sun not giving her light, and the moon, and the constellations, about darkness. The same language that is talked about there in Mark 13, 24 through 27. There, it's about a judgment on Babylon. But people see the day of the Lord, and they start thinking the day of the Lord has to be uh, you know, the final judgment. On Isaiah 34, Isaiah is going to talk about the land of Idumea. And he says, Come near ye nations, verses 1 through 8, to hear and hearken ye people, let the earth hear, and all that's therein, the world, and all that shall come forth. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, his fury upon their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them, he hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up from their carcasses. And the mountain shall be melted with blood, and all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. Did you hear that? All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. The heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down, as a leaf faller from the vine, and the falling fig from the tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it come down upon Idumea, upon the people of my curse, to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It's made with fat and fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of the rams. For the Lord has sacrificed in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. And the unicorn shall come down with them, the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. You see that language People call it apocalyptic language is used there, but it is not in reference to the judgment day. It's the judgment day that is to come in the future. It is in reference to a judgment day that came upon the land of Idumea, just like a judgment day that came uh, upon uh, Babylon and Isaiah chapter 13. There are other texts, folks, uh, when you're reading about Egypt in Jeremiah 46, 1 through 10, that is a judgment day. It is called the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance. Uh, other days in Ezekiel chapter 30, 
where I, Ezekiel is prophesying, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, prophesy, thus saith the Lord God, how ye woe worth the day for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. A cloudy day shall be the time of the heathen and the sword shall come upon Egypt and a great pain shall be in Ethiopia. If you read down further, it says they shall be desolate in the midst of countries that are desolate. And, and, and then in verse 10, I will make the multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So the day of the Lord was actually in reference to Nebuchadnezzar coming and destroying Egypt. There were people that desired the day of the Lord. Name is 5, 18 through 27. And, and Amos says, Woe on you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into his house and leaned his hand upon the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even the dark and no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vows. But let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years? O house of Israel, but you have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chion, your images, the star of your God, which you made yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into the captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So that day of the Lord, which is darkness, not light. You see that language? That's why Jesus used it when he was talking to his disciples. He used it because that is language of the prophets of old. Language that a Jew who understood what happened of the days of old would understand as a day of judgment, not the final day of judgment. I hope that's helped clarify some things for you about that language that seems quote-unquote apocalyptic in Mark 13, 24 through 27. Now, having said all of that, I want to come to what I think is the final nail in the coffin. Now, any one of the points, the kingdom's not of this world, the Antichrist already coming, the context of Matthew 23, 37 through 25 and Mark 13, 1 through 30, we've answered it and answered it. We've put the proverbial nail in the coffin now three or four times, right? Let's, let's just add another one. How about that? Right before we wrap up, let's talk about how Jesus is not going to reign on earth. And I've got multiple directions I want to come to you from this. And wow, I, again, this might be one of those moments where if you're thinking Jesus is going to reign on earth through some form of a rapture doctrine or some other doctrine, you're just going to kind of thump yourself on the forehead after you hear this, and you're going to say, how did I ever believe that? Well, it's easy to be misled. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13-18, Paul writing to Christians in Thessalonica, uh, Paul actually, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, and that is, they are dead, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first." 
Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. When I read earlier the Moody Bible Institute quote, and they referenced this, and I said, they said, so we shall ever be with the Lord, but they don't mean that. Why? Because they say the Lord's going to come back to earth. See, no, no. Verse Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, there's no coming back to earth. Now, I want to give you a quick thought here. Jesus, for Christians, is our high priest. In Hebrews 4, 14, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed in the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. In Hebrews 6, 20, Wherefore, the forerunner is entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Did you hear that? He's made a high priest forever. In Hebrews chapter 7, 22 through 25, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. They truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So a priesthood that's forever, Hebrews 6, 20, unchangeable it continues, wherefore he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he liveth ever to make an intercession for them. You go into the next chapter, Hebrews 8, 1 through 4. Hey, what's this have to do with Jesus on earth? Watch. Now, of the things we have spoken, this is the sum. And he's really summarizing Hebrews chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifice, wherefore it is a necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Did you hear that? For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to law. Jesus comes to earth, he's not our high priest anymore. But wait, that can't happen, right? The plan of salvation falls apart. He has an unchangeable priesthood. He makes intercession. Ah. Another point. When Jesus does return, I said we'd get to this. There's going to be no more earth. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14, The day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night, in which the heavens shall melt with a great noise, elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and all the works that are in shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens shall be on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So the earth is going to end, and because of that, you had better be living right when Jesus comes. The book of Revelation. I said, man, just, just start in chapter 1. Chapter 1, first four verses. Hear this. Those of you that are confused in the book of Revelation, and I will tell you it is a confusing book. There's imagery in there that just makes your head hurt. But chapter 1 and chapter 22 hold some keys that if you keep in mind, your head won't hurt too bad. It says in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servant things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written therein, 
for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So you heard that, right? Things which must shortly come to pass. The time was at hand. And who is it said to? Seven congregations in Asia in the first century. When you're reading the book of Revelation, that's who it's written to. And it's about things they're facing and they're going to see in their generation. In Revelation 22, 6, he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of his holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servant the things which must shortly be done. Verse 10, he saith unto me, seal not the saying of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Got it? You got that? While you may be confused when you study the book of Revelation, trying to figure out what figures mean, they do not mean, they do not mean some war coming in the future. It's about what the Christians were facing in the first century. And yes, there are things contained in the book of Revelation, like other books of the Bible, that have people looking forward to the hope of eternal life. But the major context is about things in the first century. So folks, there's going to be an end. It's going to be for all of us. That resurrection day is not the beginning of tribulation. It's not in the mid of tribulation. It's not after the tribulation. The tribulation that Daniel spoke of happened in the Old Testament. The tribulation that Jesus talked about happened in AD 70. The tribulation that John was talking about to the seven churches of Asia Minor happened to them. When we look at the end, John 5, 28 and 29 says, Marvel not at this, the hour is coming in which all in the grave shall hear his voice. They shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. That is the simplicity of the matter. If you're reading more into the judgment day than that, you are making up things that God did not intend for you to believe. Disregard those left-behind doctrines and all the other stuff that you hear there, twist of scriptures. And when you twist the scriptures, you do so to your own destruction. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. If you would have kept reading, you know, if, if you were following along, uh, I know I'm going pretty fast. Good thing about podcasts, you can hit pause, right? But if you were to keep reading after we left off in 2 Peter 3, 14, you would have got account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of those things in which some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest any being led away with the air of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I hope this podcast has helped you grow. And if you have learned that you are in error on this, just imagine what other things you may not understand properly. Can we have a Bible study? Will you call me up, 915-525-5794? Will you email me, brian at wordstruth.net? Can we talk? Can, can I help? Please let me. You can go to my website, wordsoftruth.net. I want to help. I just want to help you be saved. I want to relieve the fear that these rapture doctrines and other false doctrines get, get, get by. You know, fear is the beginning of wisdom. And I know people fear going to hell. But I want to help you love God like He loves you. Because love is what makes Christians. Love is the greatest. You know, at the end of a context where uh, our, our Lord had Paul write to the Corinthians about the end of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 
at the end of that, he said there are three things that, that remain, faith, hope, and charity. The greatest of these is charity. Love will get you to heaven. It sure will. Love will have you obey the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Fear will make you look, but love will get you in the relationship. I want to talk to you about all those wonderful things, the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, so that you can look forward to eternal life, so that you don't get caught up and twisted in all these false doctrines that are out there. Let me help you. I hope you'll contact me. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you want to come back on Sunday, uh, if the world continues and all things are according to plan, I'll have another podcast for you then. Thank you.